You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. I want to start by a statement that I've made before that impacted my life that I did not understand when it was said. Uh, and it was said by my dear mother. I was about to say dear old mother, and then I remembered sometimes she listens, so I won't say that. And she's really not that old. But she said something to me that I've told you guys before that made no sense when she said it and now makes perfect sense in hindsight. And she said to me while I was a perfect teenager, she said when I was struggling with something, she goes, Rodney, I was, I was complaining. I don't know what I was talking about. It was probably something really superficial, but she said, Rodney, I would not go back to high school for $1 million. And I thought to myself at the time, in my naivety, I would not only go back to high school, which I was in, for a million dollars. Can you guys relate to this stage of life? I would literally do anything for a million dollars. And you can fill in the blank. I think at that stage of my life, I would have done anything for a million dollars And I just thought that she was crazy for saying that. And now I'm in this next stage of life where I'm watching things unfold and I'm watching the good, the bad, and the ugly, parenting in the the same stage that she was in. And I don't know about you. I had someone send me after church, I would go back to high school for way less than a million dollars. I wouldn't go back to middle school for a million dollars. And I thought, well, that's not my story. I thought I was really cool in middle school and then my life changed in high school. But they, I, I, I had this reality, like I would not go back to what I'm experiencing through my kids right now for maybe a half million. I think a million I'd still do it. But, but that there's this reality to this, and I, I think there's a reason why. And I'm going to start in high school, we're going to move forward, and on this idea of contentment. I, I think I've captured the why, and I want to share it with you so that you can package it and you can treasure why this falls apart. I think it's the first time, look at me. I think it's the first time I ever realized you don't always get what you want. True? Relationships, high school relationships teach you that. Sports teach you that. Uh, Whatever the context, it's the first time I remember really wanting something and then realizing that I don't always get what I want. And then I also remember this reality, that I became keenly aware that I don't always get what I want. And then here's the kicker. What I think I wanted doesn't produce like I thought it would. And then just living in that heartbreak of of wanting that thing, that shiny object, that relationship, whatever it is, the chase begins when you hit puberty and then it just doesn't stop. And I think that's why that stage particularly because you want all these things and you can't control everything and it becomes like this tap on the forehead and agitation ensues. And so uh, I've shared this study with you before, uh, but I wanna share it with you again. It's been a few years there have actually been significant research as to how contentment works and why it falls apart in your life. And in London, they did a study that they found that contentment or discontentment starts peaking in your life at the ripe young age of 13, and it goes on a downward spiral, so you get more discontent on average from 13, now here's here's the gloomy reality if you're like 25 years old in church, all the way to 40. And I'm 41, so I am loving this time with you, right? That it actually gets more and more and more difficult where you're chasing the rainbow 
all the way to the age of 40, and I think there's a number of reasons why. We'll talk about that today, obviously. It's a sermon on contentment to start out the new year, but, but I've actually said this before, and I wanna pay attention to the fact that does anyone care at all what I say? Do you remember anything? And my overwhelming response is probably gonna be no, but I'm just gonna throw it out there. I said it to the first service, one person knew. Uh, what is the maximum age of contentment according to this study? Now, I'm not a narcissist, I don't think. I know you don't remember from a few years ago. But what do you think it is? You can shout it out. 65, you're getting close. 74, were you at the first service? Did you literally just guess that? All right, half off your tithe, just congratulations, right? (laughs) 74, that's crazy. 74 years old is the highest rate of contentment in life, and so the thing about that, I said this, I remember specifically, the thing about that that's sad is that a lot of us aren't gonna see it, statistically. My father didn't see it, and his father didn't see it, and so I'm the third, and then his father actually didn't see it as well, and so the saddest part of that is maybe you're like 68 years old. I had someone who's in their 60s that I'm close to said before service, they said, you know, actually now I feel good. I have something to look forward to, but for some of us, we'll never even see that reality. And the even sadder reality is this, and this is when I was starting preaching in my 20s, I know for a fact I would have come to the pulpit and I would have taught this text through the lens of Christian and non-Christian, saved and unbeliever, that if you are a follower of Christ, you have contentment and we need to package that contentment up and we need to give it to a lost world around us And then I got a little bit scorned by the fact that I worked with Christians for years and years and years, and now what I can tell you as a pastor who's been at this for quite a while now is this isn't just a Christian versus non-Christian issue. There are a plethora, that's a big word, of Christians who are incredibly discontent that look exactly like the lost world around them, and to not understand that is to live in a naivety that's not healthy. And so Paul comes along and he says this. He says, I have not just contentment. Here's what's so interesting about Paul and here's why Philippians is my favorite epistle. He says, I have a secret. I've packaged it. I've walked in through life experience what it looks like to have everything, to have nothing, to be saved, to be a pagan, to think I'm a religious person and to actually be a zealot who is completely lost. I know what it's like to live with contentment. And he says to the church, as he's in prison, living in chains, he says, I have the secret. And so what I wanna do is I want us to take a quick test to see where we're actually at with this. And just so you know, at the end of the four-question test, I will present to you my personal results where I'm at in 2022. But here's the first question I have for you if you wanna see if you truly understand this issue. Number one, do you look to the future to all of life's problems. And so the way, what I'm actually saying is this, do you look to the future as to the answer to all those problems? So, so when you see life, if you know if you're content or discontent, do you say, you know, things are bad right now, but if I can just fill in the blank, get to this stage in this reality, then I will have the job that I want, I will have the marriage that I want, I will have you know, just this bliss of a life that I can finally live in. Right now it's bad, but later it's gonna be better. And you don't have to raise your hand, just, just kind of tally that up in your mind. 
Do you walk in that reality where the future is the answer to your problems, or have you come to the realization that the future just simply never arrives? That that train never hits the station? That it's always a new thing? Question number two, do you struggle with bitterness? Do, do you see life through a lens of everything always happens for everyone else except for little old me? Is that a struggle for you in your heart? Question number three, is there something, are you tallying it up in your mind because you have to have a score, is there something or someone in your life that if they were taken from you, you couldn't live? Now, physically, you're not going to take your life over it, but you're going, I, I don't even know how I exist outside of that reality. Is there a thing or a person that's become a false idol? And then the fourth thing that always tells on us, because living this way is in, intuitively selfish, is loving others a top priority. The reason I say that one is because the discontent heart is always self-focused. And so based on those four key questions that I have decided in my own heart, are the four questions to contentment. I know you could think of others, but, but I'm the one preaching. How did you score? Who in here could be vulnerable enough just to admit that you, you bombed like two out of four of those questions? Anybody? All right, so, so, so pay attention, because this is vulnerability time. I'm like a three out of four fail. I think the only one that I've passed with flying colors is I don't perceive myself to be a bitter person, but Loving others a top priority, not all the time. Is there something or someone in my life that I can't live without? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's definitely where I'm at right now. And then the big one is this, that I always look to the future, and I think it's the most common thing. I always look to the future to solve all of my woes, that it's bad now, but if I can just, you know, fill in the blank, get to that place of utopia, then my wildest dreams will come true. And so this is a common struggle for us, and Paul inserts himself into the struggle. He is writing in a place where he's older, he's more mature, he's writing from a place where he has nothing, and he's giving an introspective look as to his past when he says, I have gone through the gamut of life, I have experienced everything that you can imagine, and I'm telling you, there is a secret to contentment and it's not what you think. In fact, intuitively, it's the opposite of what you think. And if I was to kind of analyze the psyche of Paul, I think he was a perfectionist. There's evidence for that for sure. And I think because he was a perfectionist, he was an anxious perfectionist where he always had to have his ducks in a row. And I think this issue in his own life, based on his personality type, would have absolutely tormented him pre-salvation and then into salvation. And so these words are test-driven, and this is what he says. Look at verse 10 of chapter 4 of Philippians. He says, I've rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have received your concern for me. He said, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, and I want you to underline this, we all walk in it together, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be What? To be what? I have learned in whatever situation I am in, this puts them in about a 0.01% of the population, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's what Paul is saying. 
He is saying this one thing that you need to hear this morning before we move to the next thing that you need to hear this morning. He's saying this, and you can fill this in. It's in your bulletin. We talked about this concept before, and here it goes. Contentment is not contingent on your circumstance. What Paul's saying, and, and here's what history tells us about Paul. He, he, he's a perfectionist. He's a genius. He's small in stature. Uh, some church historians say that he was bald with a unibrow. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but get this little man in your mind who, who's kind of just a know-it-all, who, who always has the answer, and he's giving us wisdom from prison in, 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 a, in a prison cell, talking to a church in Philippi. He's saying circumstance, although you think is the problem, circumstance in your life is not the problem. And everything inside of me says that there's no way that can be true, but if I'm just gonna do a case study of my own life, I have to concede that he's right. Look back on your life if you've lived any life at all. Before I got married, I was anxious about finding someone to marry. Can you relate? Do you remember that experience? That everything was about if I can just find the person, then my wildest dreams will come true. And I don't want to rain on your parade. And I know, I think I saw my wife actually in church in the back, but is that kind of, I mean, maybe that's your reality, okay? You have the perfect marriage. Before you got married, if you could just find someone to attach your dreams to or with, then your wildest dreams would come true. And so I was anxious about finding someone, and then I got married, and I was anxious in marriage because marriage can be very difficult. Or, or maybe for you, it's child rearing. And, and before you had kids, you were anxious. You know, can I have kids? Will I have boys? Will I have girls? What will that process look like? And then... Maybe you're where I'm at right now and, and you have like teenagers who think they're way smarter than you. Uh, then you have kids and you realize there's a whole other anxiety of actually having kids. And so having kids wasn't the solution to all your wars, woes. Or, or you didn't have a career and now you have a career. Or whatever your reality is, you have to concede just by being intellectually honest in your own life that circumstance is not the problem. And the way that you perceive that is going to be the solution. That every time you get to the next stage, it presents a new problem, and the problem is not even the problem at all. He says, I know what it's like to be content when I'm brought low. Here's why that's interesting. We've talked about this before. Paul wasn't always in a place of low. And some of us live life in a way where all we've ever known is low. But Paul was wealthy. Paul was educated and Paul was respected, and so he says something that a lot of us can't even acknowledge. What he's saying in this text is, I used to be somebody, and now I'm not somebody, and I lost my status, and I've had to find peace in my circumstance where I can look at my life and I can honestly, objectively say, it doesn't matter if everyone loves you or everyone hates you. I've experienced both. The same people that loved Paul would have been the same people that would have seen his name once he became a Christian as a cuss word. And so he says, I know what it's like to have something and then to lose it. I know what it's like to think you have a friend and realize that you're not your friend at all. He says, I know what it's like to have food and to have the biggest feast that I could ever imagine. And then I know what it's like to starve and sit in a prison cell and literally wait for my next meal to come from a people in a church group that are gonna bring me some food. I've had everything and I have had nothing. And he even puts it through the lens of this, that, that this entire process, because I've learned, implies something that we need to hear this morning. 
I've learned isn't I wasn't a Christian and then I became a Christian and I had all the contentment that I could ever imagine. He's saying through the lens of I've learned within my walk in sanctity with Christ that I've learned this process of contentment and I didn't always have it figured out. And so that's good news for us because we can walk in this reality of going, you know, I'm scoring like a two out of four or a three out of four, but as I mature in Christ, it doesn't have to stay that way. I can walk in a different way than I've walked before. I can have abundance, I can be hungry, I can have everything, I can have nothing. And then he says the most manipulated verse in the New Testament, and I want you to hear it. Verse 13, everyone knows it, you don't have to be a Christian. It's the greatest self-help, misrepresented verse in all of scripture, in my opinion. He then says this, he says, I can, you can say it with me, verse 13, say it if you know it, if you've heard it, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Anyone not know that verse, never heard of it. I grew up Presbyterian, we would memorize scripture through song, and the guys in church camp would go, I can do, and then the girls would go, all things, and then you'd reverse it and everyone would go, yay, we're Christians, right? Nothing wrong with Presbyterian, that was my experience. I knew that verse, I knew that verse because my basketball would tell me, coach would tell me before a game, I can, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And it's typically preached through this lens of your wildest dreams can come true if you just believe, and here's where it's so manipulated, in yourself enough to achieve. Have you ever heard it like that? I mean, basketball players will like ride it on their shoe and, and make millions. Here's the problem. Paul's saying the exact opposite. He's not saying your wildest dreams can come true if you believe in the power that you possess. He's saying lay your life down at the foot of the cross. You can be hungry, you can be starving, you can be feasting, you can be friends all around you, you can have no one to speak of that's in your life that loves you, you can have any hardship, you can be in a prison cell, you can be living in a castle, it doesn't really matter. You can do all things by emptying yourself because Christ is sufficient for your circumstance. That's the context of this verse. He even says this, he says, I've learned to be content in abundance. And you look at life through a young lens and you go, well, why is that a big deal? If you have abundance, of course you're content. If you've lived long enough, look at me, you know that having a lot can be a train wreck too, amen? How many of you know rich people that are miserable? Trust me, just live longer, you will. He says contentment, this is what he's saying, you can fill it in, contentment isn't natural, contentment is supernatural. It's not about you being better, you achieving, you seeing your wildest dreams come true and living in contentment, it's about emptying yourself and the counterintuitive reality is this, that when you die to self, that's when you're truly fulfilled. That I can do all things because Christ is good. And because of our sin nature, we are hardwired in a way to actually lack contentment, and that's not a bad thing because it points us straight to Christ who saves. That we're hardwired in a way to go, man, apart from Christ's death and resurrection, apart from the Holy Spirit living in and through my life, 
I am going to be miserable. And so that thirst that I keep trying to quench through all of these external means, all these peripheral means, is falling flat on its face, and that's okay. And the pain actually has a purpose, and it's taking me to a place where I need to go, where I can truly find contentment in Christ, and it's supernatural, and he's strengthening me, and he's growing me. And the contentment is not an inward strength, it's an upward power, and I have to connect to the power source. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He concludes like this. He says, yet it was kind of you, verse 14, to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. And even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I was supplied and having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering of sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and our Father be glory forever and ever, amen. He says this, he says, greet every saint. This is what I wanna focus on. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who will meet, uh, meet me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in spirit. Here's here's the thing that I want us to just kind of hone in on 2022. The contentment is the one thing that we all want. No no one's going to say, you know, my dream is to be discontent. My dream is to be unfulfilled. People spend billions, if not trillions of dollars, chasing that dream in modern culture. But if you want to know how it works, Paul's laying it out as he has nothing in prison, yet he is content. Contentment, write it down, does not live alone. It does not live alone. In a current culture that is more isolated than we've seen in generations, in a current church culture that, just being very transparent, is running from community is running from accountability. Church attendance in the last several hundred years ever in the United States has never been lower. In the last 10 years, pre-COVID, pre-COVID, this isn't some COVID pitch, pre-COVID it dropped 12% again from 2011 to 2021. And people are basically living in a way that is incredibly selfish and they're saying to themselves, I don't really need what that place has to offer And then the response has to be, has to be, what if, what if the church actually needs you and you were designed to live within the context of being around a people that's all purchased by the blood of Jesus on mission to accomplish the same thing, to make Christ known? And what if your contentment was not about you having more, but what if your contentment was about dying to yourself and being a part of this thing that Jesus has purchased with his blood to pour out and to absolutely make Christ known around them. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord at his disposal. Paul sales pitches this thing as he closes this book out. And his sales pitch is the greatest sales pitch that everyone uses in infomercials now 2,000 years later. He says, I have a secret. And when you want something that you can't have, 
Isn't it kind of just like scratching the curious part of your brain when someone has that pitch? You guys ever go to the fair and you go through all the kiosks in the booth and they start showing you the secret to, you know, to this or to that and they, you know, for, for $99.99 you can have this thing. I, I can't even tell you how many times I've sat in those back massagers in the Brown County Fair because they have the secret of finally healing the pain in my back. That's a random example I didn't plan on bringing up. He says, I have the secret. I have the secret sauce. Let me just tell you what it is. And so what he's saying is this. He's showing it with his life. He's saying the secret of contentment is contentment lives in people who live on mission. Paul lived on mission from the time he got saved to the time he got murdered and breathed his last breath for the gospel. He says, I know what it's like to have everything to have nothing, and that does not matter. All that matters, this is Paul, is Christ crucified. My days are coming to an end. I might never get out of this prison cell. But I know what it's like to have everything because having everything for me means having Christ and making him known. I want to close out our time, and I say close out cautiously because on Christmas Eve, in masses, you laughed at the 12 days of Christmas when the 11th day was like, I only have two more things to say and then we'll pray. And then everyone laughed because they thought, well, Rodney never shuts up. And so I am very discontent with your response to that. But I, but I want to close with caution that we really are at the end. And I want to just speak, I wrote this down about 10 minutes before the first service, to what I think is the primary area of discontentment based on your life stage and demographic. And I want to put it in three groups. Number one, if you are a teenager that we spoke about at the beginning, your discontent most likely most likely because you're selfish. Now, I don't know how many teenagers there are, but I feel like I just gave your parents a home run because maybe they've been saying that to you already. And I'm not saying every teenager is selfish, but I am saying this. If you took 100 teenagers and found out why they're discontent, it's most likely in that first stage of development before you have real problems and real bills and, and you're sitting in this stage of life, the problem is most likely that you're self-absorbed. And so do an honest inventory. Life is not all about yourself. Life is not all about your needs and your wants and everything around you is telling you what are you gonna do with your life? Who are you gonna marry? What are you gonna do for a career? You know, how are you gonna achieve at this stage of development? And I'm just telling you, it's the exact opposite if you truly wanna be content. What does it look like to pour out to people in your life stage, younger than you, to be mentored by people older than you and have the humility as a young person to go, I don't have all of this figured out and it's just quite possible that the reason I'm miserable is because it's all about me and I spend 90% of my day taking pictures of my forehead and sending them to my friends. It is possible that the reason you're miserable is because you're selfish. Next stage, I'm just gonna clump us all together and I know this is not easy to do and there are always exceptions to rules but to all of those who have been past that stage and are now in, in marriages or used to be in marriages and have kids that are getting older, here's why I think we live in such a high rate of discontent because we're constantly, constantly chasing. True? 
You're constantly chasing your children. Your schedule is insane, and your priorities are way out of whack. And what does it look like in 2022 to refocus and to say, yes, my schedule's busy. Yes, my kids need a lot of me. Yes, my time is being demanded of, but I am going to consecrate my time. My schedule is not gonna control me. I'm gonna control it, and I'm gonna make time for being in the word of God. We have an app for you to do that this year, and you can see that on social media or our website, how to get involved in that. You can read the Bible daily, and you can go through the entire Bible in, the, in, in this next year, 2022, as a church, and we can actually see feedback on who's doing that. What does it look like to say, I'm gonna have time for prayer, I'm gonna have time for church, I am gonna have time for getting in the word of God, and he is going to be my top priority, and everything is gonna trickle down from there, and although I'm busy, I'm not gonna chase like, you know, like a chicken with my head cut off and let everything hit me instead of me proactively saying, Christ first, everything else second. Third group, and this is, I say this with the most humility because I'm not there yet. It is very possible if you're in a legacy mode that the primary source of your discontentment, look at me, is you checked out too early. That your passion for making Christ known has whittled away because you think you have nothing left to offer and you're just not in the game like you used to be. And I say this with humility because I'm not there yet, but we see this happen in church. And the most powerful people in any ministry are people that are in legacy mode and making intentional efforts to pour into the next generation to mentor and to love and to make disciples. There is one reason that new life exists, one reason. And we have been beating this war drum for 16 years. The only real reason new life exists, the reason that you would go here as opposed to maybe finding something else that even fits you better. The reason that you're gonna go here and you're gonna love it or the reason you're gonna go here and you're gonna leave because you hate it is because of this one thing. New Life Fellowship since 2005 has existed. Look at me when I tell you because this is your exit strategy if you don't believe it. New Life Fellowship exists to bring glory to God by making more disciples, period. Christ is not a way. He's not a self-improvement plan. Christ is the way and without him you go to hell. And because we believe that with all of our heart, it's not some religious thing where we go, man, we believe that, and so everyone, if you don't believe that, then you know, get out of here. I'm saying that because it's a passionate plea to be like Paul. It's a passionate plea to find contentment, not on making your life better, but by self-sacrificing and saying, everything, everything but Christ crucified doesn't genuinely matter in the end because it's all gonna be put back in the box, and before I know it, it's all gonna be over that the person next to me might not be my cup of tea and everything about this church new life might not be my cup of tea, but I believe that with my whole heart and so I'm willing to partner with people that I don't even agree with on every issue because we're a family in this together and Christ is all that matters and his salvation plan and new life in him is all that matters and new life is gonna see change happen in Aberdeen and new life is gonna see change happen in Rock Creek and new life is gonna see change happen in Peru because Christ is the answer and his gospel is the only way. The cross is my only hope and everyone that can buy in on that idea, that's my family. I was doing something super spiritual last night 
I was watching Willy Wonka. Not the stupid new one, the old one. 1971. I had this epiphany. And I promise you, this truly is my last, this is all I've got. I want to close on something spiritual, Willy Wonka. And I had this epiphany that everyone in there except for the kids are dead. And so I said, Ann, my wife, she Googles everything. She gets bored quick and she Googles everything. And I said, Ann, I think everyone's dead that's like an adult. And Gene Wilder, I mean, he's a legend, right? Dead. Willy Wonka himself is gone. And she starts Googling things. She says, you know, the, we're watching the blueberry stage where they're going to juice her. And she goes, yeah, the blueberry lady's even dead. And I thought, are you kidding me? Like, life's not worth living, the blueberry lady. She, she's just a little kid. And you can look yourself at how she passed. And then a few nights before that, I was watching Everyone Loves Raymond. You guys ever watch that show? One of the best shows ever made. How funny are the grandparents in Everyone Loves Raymond? They're hilarious. Go back and watch that show on Peacock or whatever it's on. The grandparents, all gone. And then the most heartbreaking reality of all, Golden Girls. Golden Girls. It's not that old, is it? Blanche. The seductress, Blanche. She's gone. She's She's not, she's not here on planet Earth anymore. And then Betty White, I just watched the thing on her. She was hilarious. She just died at 99, almost 100 years old. She was the last living golden girl. Like all of these staples from my childhood when my mom's having this conversation with me about not going back to high school for a million dollars, all of those creature comforts, everyone loves Raymond. I mean, I wasn't even in high school anymore. All of these things that weren't that long ago. All of them, people gone. Either they knew Christ or they didn't. Maybe they worked, you know, in a drive-through or maybe they were Betty White and for 70 years were nationally known or even known on a world stage for being a great actress. They're all in a grave or cremated. They are gone, soon to be forgotten. It all comes down to this one reality. And I'm not trying to be fatalistic, but hear me say it as we start the new year. All that matters is that you know Christ. That is it. That is it. And the good news is this. When you know him, when you love him, when you serve him, then he places you on mission and he takes all of those things in your heart that are broken. And they're not all just magically better overnight, but he pushes you in a direction of sanctification where he challenges you to go on mission with him and he puts family around you that might not be blood related and that all of us in our dysfunction can make Christ known and be a part of the solution and not the problem. That just like Paul, we can be content because we know Christ crucified and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Do you know the risen Savior And this year, are you willing to put down all those false idols that have you fail the contentment test and say, Christ, it's all about you in 2022? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you place in us this piece of our heart that's not content unless we know you. That we're hardwired in a way to search for hope. And that in this moment, In this room, you've revealed yourself to us as a risen Savior who provides that hope. And so I would ask as we start this new year that if we're followers of you, that we would dig into your word, 
that our prayer life would be alive and active, that we would have this newfound passion, this newfound contentment resting in the mission that we've been placed on to make your name great. And for those that walk in and they're just being honest, they're completely discontent, God, I count that as a blessing. And then this moment, would you convict them of their sin? Would they do an honest inventory of their life and realize that there's no hope outside of you? That they're on a fast track to destruction, but you have saved them if they turn their life to you right now. That you've taken their sin on your cross. That you died the death that they should die for their sin, that a holy God demands, and that you rise from death so that they can have life. And they would start this new year off with a new life with a new mind, the mind of Christ, where they would follow you and love you and serve you and lay down their life for you. And their contentment wouldn't become from a, from a mindset of trying harder, but surrendering more. And they, they right now would say, Jesus, you're the king, you're the savior. I give it all to you this year. Jesus, have your way in our church. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. And everybody said, amen.